Welcome everyone to Deporti Podcast 11, week 23 of year 2023. Oh wow, that's a coincidence. For those of you who are hearing us first, we are a hospitality podcast that summarizes the news of the industry once a week and also tries to sprinkle in a little bit of uh, stuff that is happening outside the industry so we don't live in the bubble. Um, hello Miriam, how are you? Hello Mish, I'm very well. How are you? I'm pretty good this week, I think. You think? Yeah, I think you're the one that knows. <laughs> then maybe I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Um, so my name is Michael and Miriam, who is our generally the person who has the sanity to question things from a human perspective. And I'm the guy who is a bit too rational sometimes. And on that you're note, the guy who knows all the facts and all the history points. Yeah, I'm sure if we actually have fact checkers here, I would be correct and wrong <laughs> on about 100% of things I say, but that's fine. I mean, the podcast is about our opinions and ideas, right? So I think it's fair. Agreed. Um, All right. On that note, let's start with the week. Uh, and it was a pretty full one on that compared to last week, I would say. Uh, let's start with the first piece of news. Uh, and I think yeah, you probably would want your... You like this topic quite a bit, and that is the death of brands as we know it. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think I do like the topic of brand in general, in, in hospitality particularly. And I think, I mean, we both worked at the same company before, and I think brand always was a big topic. And um, it's very emotional, <clears throat> very subjective, so my favorite topics. Anyway, I, I've read an article that says that um, it's the death of brands as we know them. And I actually, it's very interesting because we're at the conference and in a way it felt like hospitality becomes like a blend again. And we just kind of said that many, many hotel brands now are like copies of the 25 hour hotels, so to say. And they think that they're super innovative, but it just becomes kind of like a blend because they've been copying each other over and over again. Like I would say like 20 years ago, everything looked like, a Marriott and a Wynham uh, and so the new Marriott and Wynham is like a, now the 25 hour maybe <clears throat> and in this article kind of says if you want to differentiate as a hospitality brand you either have like a very strong personality brand mention things like Michael Berger where often it's um, owned and operated by the same person or there's La Granja in Ibiza where um they do farming and hosting people. So where where the hospital, the, the hotel has a real character. And the other thing is how you can differentiate or how you can make a brand new and innovative in this time is by combining this and different services. Like you mentioned the, the student hotel now called the social hub, where you have students, where you have co-working, where you have... Um, F&B concepts, and, but also overnight stays. So I, I find it super interesting that these are kind of the two ways of how the person who wrote the article sees the brands in the future. Um, what's your take on that? What do you think about brand? I was reading it, and it's a, I have to say it's an excellent piece of writing. Uh, it's a very good. I think it's an opinion of of someone you can clearly see is very experienced in the industry, but <laughs> it felt <laughs> to me like I mean, if you really drill down to to the core of the message, 
it's it's very basic in a nutshell, right? It's you have a, a business you want to differ. You have in order to make money, you have to differentiate yourselves. Right now, we have high competition because everybody is doing everything. So for you to stand out, you a have to offer a diversified product to make money on all fronts, right? This is like business rule one hundred and one. And B, you have to be um, personalized enough, so you have to find your target group. So you have, that's also another way to differentiate. So really, to me, it's just um, basically a digestion of a business book uh, telling you, well, that's how you do it, and that's how you can do it in hospitality specifically. <laughs> we wait, but you're completely forgetting that right now. And I mean, it, it's, <clears throat> it's again my, my feeling, but I feel that before you had many hotels, let's say in the mountains of Switzerland or Austria or wherever, where you had families running their own properties. And now slowly they're all becoming like big brands and they're being operated by third party operators that, you know, they're just becoming more standardized where before, you know, let's say a hundred years ago, hotels didn't really need to differentiate because every hotel was very different because it was run and owned by a different person. Right. So I do believe like by looking at hotel developments and what has happened in also in the hotel investment industry that brands start looking more and more the same. Maybe it's just an impression like the longer you are part of the hospitality business, but it could I be that it could be that the you know compared to let's say manufacturing, right? Um where people produce candy, right? There's been in the industrialization in that sort of sector since the 50s, 60s, 20s, right? It was kind of at the forefront of innovation of human knowledge, right? Um, and there you can see a lot of brands are really trying to differentiate, but it, but it's been happening for a while and it's just the same thing happening in hospitality, right? There's so much out there, so many offerings that it all kind of blends in. Kind of like when you go to the supermarket and you look at the chocolate stand and you just think, what is the difference, right? And you, you, basically, they're trying to attract you with, right? It's it's a it's a it's a quick decision. Therefore, it's much easier to attract your attention by you know designing the colors, putting a little color sticker of it's bio or you know it's eco friendly <laughs> something, right? But in a nutshell, that's what it is on the uh, on a bigger scale for hotels. In a way, it's it's just a mirroring of the situation. Yeah, I get your point, but I feel like many chocolates, even you know, it, lo it starts looking like all the chocolate papers start looking similar as well. You know, like there is a very interesting. I, I'm trying to say, I think there's a very interesting observation. So, the people who owned Budweiser in mm. the United States, mm. it used to be one family, and they okay. sold it for right fact checkers. I'm sure out there who correct <laughs> me, but they sold it for I think around 40 billion US dollars a few mm -hmm. years ago, or maybe a decade already at this point. And then they've taken that money and they've, they've reinvested it into a bunch of um, craft beer. So they've okay. basically said, we believe that the mass production consumption of beer is going to decrease, yet mm -hmm. the mass uh, yeah, ma mass consumption, like the consumption of sort of quality beer, specialized beer that targets people on the more better level will not decrease. It in fact will increase. And so they've actually done the, the most elegant thing one can do, exited the market that has no future in the next 100 years, well, mm -hmm. theoretically, right? And then to the market that is the future, the long tail economics of things, if you want. So maybe this is, maybe I don't think, I, I'm not sure, right? Because hospitality is is more complicated, but uh, I'm, I'm definitely seeing connections there between kind of the idea of yeah. Hilton becoming boring for an average consumer and um, people wanting to look for things that are more oriented towards them. Yeah. And yeah. 
view or like that comparison. I think I never, I didn't think about it in that way. So super nice. Like. Well, we'll see. We'll see, right? I mean, I, I really like the idea of the student hotel, as they call the social hub, right? Mm -hmm. They have, well, that's what they claim. I don't know the official <laughs> statistics, like the actual statistics, but they have a 99% occupancy rate, right? Yeah. They um, have students during um, time when students move in, and they have tourists during time when tourists are there. And by the way, those are polar opposite times. During August, there's peak season for tourism. And during, you know, during times like January, that's where students move in. Right. And students yeah. move out in August like they don't they, they go somewhere else to on holiday. They don't have university. So it's a perfect mix. And then they also do offer coffee, co-working and a bunch of other stuff. So, yeah, yeah. They, they do the ultimate diversification. I was actually thinking, right, if um, tell me what, what you think, because um, big brands I mean, like I, I think it's an additional thing. What they also spoke about, right, by offering many more different service that actually the subscription model will make sense. That's also what the article talks about, like yeah. the more. The more you actually serve or the more offers you cover, the more likely it is that a subscription a su subscription based model will work. And I think that's another way of, of differentiating in that sense. Um, yeah, it's I mean, if you really look at back at the history, I can't remember examples in the 50s and 60s where people tried to offer a, a different set of concepts inside a building. I think landlords always did it right. They always tried to put office spaces in there, a bit of residential, a bit of hotel or something, right? And therefore, they have different business models. But the business model itself of hotels was always like, we do hotels and that's it. Because they wanted to focus on that and offer a good product. I mean, we'll the, I think the mix was bar and F&B, right? That's how, how that became. But that is not happening anymore. Now, most companies focus either on beds or on restaurants or on spa or on fitness. So actually, it becomes, yeah, more independent concepts working together for a mixed-use building at least and i think for an investor it gives them yeah, a way of differentiating so i think it's nice well interesting stuff we recommend those who, who are listening check out our description and you can look up the link and read in yourself it's a very interesting article i think on that note next piece of news next piece of news um, um go ahead <laughs> sorry we have to talk about the Vision Pro from Apple because we're very curious about whether it's going to change the hospitality industry or not. The article that we have found says no. <clears throat> the release of the, the big hype of the Vision Pro is not going to impact the hospitality industry anytime soon. Um, I'm kind of curious, Mishto, like if, if you think if you would think that it would change the hospitality industry, how would it? What do you think? Maybe for those who don't know, um, not everybody's an Apple freak <laughs> yet. Uh, Vision Pro is a new headset that Apple has released, and it's basically their first that offers AR and VR experiences, so virtual reality and augmented reality experiences, meaning um, virtual reality is when you completely see an entire new reality, and augmented reality is when you look at your table and it can put things on top of the table so goggles, it uses your surrounding right it's goggles not just headsets yeah it's a headsets heads it's a headset with goggles inside and the goggles ah. themselves are actually a screen basically and it can it it can uh, block out the entire view so it can become basically a headset like a vr headset or other way around and it's um, triggered quite a big raw uproar across you know the tech world because i think it, it differentiated itself way more than any other offering on the market at the moment um, so that's for context for those who haven't heard. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, in my opinion, right, um, 
I've had this conversation with a few friends of mine who work in the tech world, and I think the main point I took out of it was um, the g- current big fight is if VR will actually become mass market. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the big question. Because if, if it will become mass market, we might be living in a world like Player One, one of the latest movies of Steven Spielberg, where everybody sits at their home, their homes look absolutely fucking terrible, and all they care about is just their VR headset, they put it on, and they're in an entirely different universe. Where can they do whatever they want? They can look like whatever they want, but actually it looks realistic, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the most important thing here, no matter how great the Vision Pro is, if you don't have a world that will create the experiences that people believe in. So for example, like Meta, right? Facebook is trying to organize that and it's mm. not believable at all. It looks funny. It looks like uh, like you're playing a, a character from a Nintendo Switch. Sorry, yeah. sorry, Nintendo, Nintendo Wii U, right? It's it doesn't look realistic, and that's why it's not has it hasn't taken off yet, so that everybody's really adopting it. Um, and that's yeah. the big question, right? It's not about the headset because everybody's going to create one, and once somebody figures out the one headset, first of all, it has to become cheap for people to be able to use it, and second of all, there has to be a lot of software that will support this, right? We will, and on top of that, right? Once all of those things combined will be good enough, then people will actually sit at home and might not need a holiday. Yeah, that's the argument, right? They might not need to travel. They might not need to have a meeting because they can sit there in front of some other person. The the emotions will be duplicated, everything, right? There's two sides of things. People want to travel and people want to meet other people in person, right? That's what we talked about. And currently, both cannot be fulfilled. But I think think you're answering my... Okay, so no, you just answered my question. You said if the VR Pro or the headset is really going to take off and it's becoming accessible to everybody and everybody is adapting to it then people will not want to go on holiday anymore but that's your that's how you think if that is adapted that would change hospitality industry like because for me for example i was just thinking um oh i would just wear the headset when i book for example because i would be booking i would have a look at the room then if i want to speak to someone i would like press a button and could see maybe someone customer service helping me and booking it for me you know that's how I kind of was maybe I was just a few steps behind you in in that sense but I was thinking oh okay it would be nice to wear the headsets see the room maybe even see the person that you know asking oh can I put the AC there or is the window there or can I see the sea from this side just to have a better idea on what I am booking that to me was that is true right there's an interface that's just but that's just one application that can that this Mm. headset can offer right and inherently even if that happens which probably can even happen today right Uh, maybe it's not as widespread but um it won't change anything it's just that hospitality businesses might have to think about creating 3d photo shoots of their rooms and not just uh, (laughs) a few sets of pictures right but if if you change the entire humanity's behavior, like in sci-fi movies and books, mm. right, where people will travel less, leave their home less, and, well, not home, <laughs> they will not be homeless, but they will leave their home less, <laughs> um, then that will impact the entire the entire world as a whole, right? Otherwise, I think it's just marginal. Um, yeah. I mean, the idea is that people start wearing that those glasses, kind of, like people are using their cell phones, right? So the glasses have to become smaller. They have to become easy to wear and so on. Otherwise, I, I don't know. I cannot really see myself wearing those glasses. That, that's actually, in fact, the biggest complaint of the article that there's been extensive studies, at least according mm. to the article, that the reason people are not using headsets is because they're heavy and uncomfortable. Yeah. And you can still just go on the computer, click a few times, here's the booking done. It's quicker and more convenient. 
and it's a bit too complicated for a person who's never done this before to put on a headset, figure how things are, because it's a completely new interface, right? Um, yeah. And also sit around in a headset for eight hours, for example. Yeah. And if you're not sitting around in it for eight hours, why would you use it? Then it's just a toy. Hmm, you're right. Or it could become part of like work, that if you go to work, you wear the headset and then you kind of interact with, okay, now we're just going too far. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> well, um, I guess on that, on that uh, piece of news. I think we should news, be moving on. That's great. <laughs> we need to start. <laughs> um, I think the next part, uh, I want to I claim this one. Um, you want that so, one? Okay. <laughs> um, let's, let's do a bit of, um, uh, so it's a very interesting article for me. Um, it's in German, unfortunately, but for those of you who have the link, you can just click on it and translate it in detail, no problem. Germany has basically Im um, imposed uh, mandatory registration for lobbying businesses and companies and you know unions uh, that impact politics. And as part of that, also service sector companies have to do that as well. Mm -hmm. And um, as a result, you can now click on it and you can find publicly available information looking at what different companies spend in different sectors to influence politics. Hmm. And ensure, and the, the interesting news is, and that's for me, I mean, that's, that's how I guess uh, Germany works. One of the biggest spenders there is insurance in our sector, right? In the service sector. So, you know, this like 70% of the economy is the service industry, right? Um, and insurance is the biggest spender. They're spending over 14 billion euros every year connected to lobbying, which Whoa. is a pretty high amount. You know how much get, get hotel, hotel and the guest related businesses are spending? I'm trying to look for it right now, but I cannot see it. Around 17 million. Boah. Yeah, there's, um, only one, there's only one kind of lobbying group in Germany. The sorry, 170 million. Yeah, 170 million. Yeah. Hotel. Um, to me, this is a pretty, right? You, you, you realize instantly, right? How much, even though, let's say for, for, for let's take Berlin, for example. Berlin has around 10% 10 pe 10 of people who are unemployed in Berlin are employed related to this specific sector, guest, hotel-related, F&B-related sector, clubs, whatever. And only 10%, and that's 10% of the entire population, of uh, like, so working population in Berlin, and yet <laughs> the amount that different uh, organizations spend is basically pennies. Now, not given, not not uh, not um, not going against it, but right there's a few there's a lot of organizations, for example, in Germany, is in other countries in Europe, who represent the tourism sector or the restaurant sector, and they support it. So they basically invest in unions, organizations, data sharing, training, certification. But the share of the money that goes to political lobbying, which is government is mandated you need to report, is basically minuscule. Crazy, but it, it's. You were, if you say hospitality, does that include restaurant and all of that? So no. you can uh, take a look, for example. You need to add it up, no? Uh, yes, exactly. No, but um, they have they have a few graphs here, right? One is um, total lobby spending by sector, right? And then there you have insurance, which is, sorry, not, uh, it was 15 billion. You have then the car manufacturing industry, which is 4.4 billion. Then you have um, labor, so a lot of unions right related to plumbers and so on and so forth. It's a very wide sector, right? Maybe engineers and I'm not sure if engineers are in there as well, but it's 1.8 billion. And then you have guest world, which basically puts together tourism and hotels and restaurants and so on and so forth. Anything related with a, with a place which has a, a guest involved. So even clubbing, for example, is mm. 170 million. 
And then they go into also looking at, you know, total spendings, for example, but it's not necessarily related to, you know, lobbying, but spendings of organizations related to the guest world and think tanks that are in that world. So, for example, number one is the German, um, uh, the Deutsche Reiseverband, the German travel union. Um, they spend over 2.8 billion, right, on various different things, but it's not necessarily related to uh, lobbying. Hmm. Yes, I see it. What do you think would happen if suddenly <laughs> the hospitality industry would have much more lobbying money? What do you think would change? Work conditions? Do you be honest, I'm generally skeptical of um, unionization and pushing for agendas, right? Because the economy doesn't care if you impose political will or not. Restaurants still have to make money. So, for example, one thing that could be politically imposed is, let's say, wage uh, increases for people who work in the sector. Um, because it's mandated, or more rights, like, for example, you have to have a toilet, like, these things exist, right? But you can definitely improve them, maybe a little bit, or even a lot in different regions. But it doesn't necessarily mean that this will be a life-changing experience, right? Because sure. in the end, a lot of businesses function the way they function, because that's what they can afford, and then people in the free market economy just choose the companies they feel find no, more appropriate No, but politics completely influence taxation, right? Like, during COVID, they were decreasing... The taxation and i think that no but it's heavily that, how much people make in the different sectors right so for that that was my thought like if you had more money going into lobbyism for hospitality industry maybe taxes would be decreased hence yeah but but right I'm, I'm talking from, i'm talking from a perspective of germany right in germany you already have seven percent sorry nine percent now again in terms yeah. of um, value-added tax on service sector um, uh, offerings, right? But, you know, 10% below everyone else, right? This was lobbied in, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right? But So I'm talking about from a standpoint of today, not not before. Before that, obviously, it, something happened and people were influencing it. Um, but today, I, I it's hard for me to see things that could be impacted heavily by... by um... hmm. I think there must be more things. I mean, for me, that was one. It could still be taxation, stuff like that. Whatever it is, right? You, you can definitely, I mean, that's the most important thing here, right? You can see that the the, the, the influence there is by the by different sectors is phenomenally Crazy. different. So even if you try, and that's the thing in the end, right? Politicians cannot just give out things to everyone. They have to choose their favorites, I suppose. That's the point of lobbying, <laughs> right? And if one industry is spending 15 billion and another industry is spending 170 billion, uh, million, then... I mean, obviously, just alone, the fact that insurance company, it's, by the way, the top one, is spending 15 billion euros a year to, on lobbying in Germany shows that there is definitely profitability in that. In, yeah, in, in insurance, you mean? Yes. No, not in, not in, in insurance, insurance itself, but the fact the act, of, small a bit, right? the act of lobbying, the act mm. of spending this, they wouldn't do this. They probably do this for the you know, past 100 years. The act of doing it makes sense for them, right? Because obviously I would have otherwise not done it. That means somebody's getting something somewhere, and it's probably not in the, in our favor, perhaps as a regular citizen. I think it's a good point to think about, for sure. All for right. Sure. Next piece uh, of news, Miriam, tell us what you what would you want to share. I really want to talk about the difference of profitability of Expedia and Booking dot com in two thousand and twenty two. Um, right, let's do it. You and I discussed already a bit about it before we started the podcast. 
Um, but the article states that in 2022, um, profitability, I mean, EBITDA of Expedia was 11.9% and bookings profitability was 31.3%, meaning booking.com or Priceline before was much more profitable during that year. And it kind of explains why, like what are the reasons? And they say in 2019 or shortly before that, um, booking.com had higher take rates. So people were paying 16% on their bookings to booking.com, but only 11% to Expedia. And another reason why booking.com was more profitable was that booking.com was in Europe where they have many independent players Uh, whereas Expedia is much stronger in the US where you have um, big brands where they have to pay or they pay lower commissions um, to Expedia. Additionally, also Priceline or Booking.com owns Kayak, Agoda and OpenTable. So they have other incomes um, than Expedia, whereas Expedia is also into flights, into airplanes, and they also have lower margins for flights um the article predicts that they that expedia will kind of join booking.com very soon in the profitability range of 23 percent um because booking wants to go to the u.s and also enter airfares what do you think of that right it's it's an interesting i mean to me it's there's a lot of ifs in this article right first of all expedia has to suddenly go from uh 11% to 23% which which is a double of their ebitda Oof. which is i mean if, if that would be the truth right we should all run now and invest <laughs> into expedia because that's going to be pretty good for anybody who owns stock in them they say it they're also realized cut, they're gunning they're they're cutting costs so <laughs> yeah but booking.com was also cutting costs right i think they fired about so it's just like ten percent of their employee staff team yeah. during the during, just like six months ago. So if that's cost, if that's not cost cutting. <laughs> what is? And then on the other hand, I, on the other hand, right? If Booking.com goes to US and they have lower profit shares, right, lower profits in the US, it doesn't mean they have lower profit as well in Europe, right? Mm. So it's a total kind of. It's not just for the US market, right? They will probably add more on top. They will not lose money from it. Yes. M- meaning. Um, I mean, if the margins are are lower and booking and Expedia is going to Europe with increasing their take rates, maybe. I think it's generally interesting, right? For, for us, we live in Europe, right? And uh, yeah. for us Europeans, Booking.com is the star. I don't think anybody uses Expedia here, right? Statistically okay. speaking, it's not really a big, big, big OTA. But in the US, it's the opposite, right? OTA, Expedia is the market leader there. Yeah. And... Uh, that's just the way it is. It's, you know, there's that sort of competition. And Booking.com is from Holland. So um, they are European-born and European-bred. <laughs> so yeah. we should vouch for them and support Maybe. them, right? Yeah, great company. Why they adapted better here. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just always interesting to look at profitabilities and reasons why companies are doing better or less well. So, Mish, I, mean, I think you should pick the last news for today which one you want or do you want to talk about wine no um i think another interesting piece of news um it's not really a piece of news it's a bit of an analysis of a current status quo mm. and it's about employee loyalty Ooh, you mean loyal- interesting? loyalty yes loyalty. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm, sure, I'm not sure which language pronunciation that was, but for employee loyalty, yes. <laughs> Sounds interesting. Should we go into that? Or that, you, you make the choice. We, we can either talk about Middle East or we can talk about employee loyalty. Loyalty. Okay. Employee you, you, loyalty. you started with it. I'm just supporting your pick. All right. Go. Sounds good. So um, The Economist has put in a really interesting article to, um, this week, basically explaining that, well, speculating on the fact that employee loyalty might be dead and might be dead forever. Um, yeah. It's a very interesting take. Basically, in a nutshell, what is imp- what is loyalty at its core? Loyalty is represented to, to, the, to a family members, to friends, right? And it's an emotional feeling. It's something that you have because you love that person or you care about them a lot or you own them something. It's not per, per se very transactional. It could be it could be based on just feelings, right? Uh, loyalty in, in, in companies is mostly based on transactions because the transaction of being an employee and an employer is based on you have a contract, you get paid, in return I provide you this, right? And whenever there is disagreement, they mostly, mostly lie in that transaction, right? Including also loyalty. And basically, the article goes into a multitude of different studies that summarize, first of all, that loyalty well, uh, is kind of dead. So uh, first of all, quite a lot of people are basically switching companies more uh, than they are, have been ever before. And this is not related to you know, unemployment or anything else. People just voluntarily leave a company because they don't feel any, any uh, loyalty to them because they want to find other opportunities. And B, which is the most interesting for me, is there's quite a lot of incentives and nudges in a human society setup between companies and employees and employers, where it's actually not beneficial for the rest of the society for people to be loyal to their companies. So example is, they shown that they looked at a study where people who were loyal to their companies were less likely to report any wrongdoings to the public of their company. So, mm-hmm. for example, let's say you work for an oil company, they've made a giant spill and everybody really loves the company. People are less likely to report that because they care about the company and not the society. Yeah. So loyal, less loyal employees is therefore, uh, well, you know, it's a, maybe not 100% like, uh, you know, absolute truth, but that's the conclusion of that study. Less loyal employees is a more beneficial uh, thing for the rest of the society because they will keep the account- company more accountable for what they do. Okay. Also, another one is uh, people who are so people who are less loyal to the company are less likely to be more sort of more politically more aggressive in their doings when they work in the company. So if somebody is very loyal to a company, they do not care for the well-being of their colleagues. Maybe they care for the well-being of the greater good of the company, and they might mm-hmm. push for whatever they think is best and disregard the feelings of their colleagues. Okay. And um, basically, this goes into kind of that idea. And so the question is, <laughs> what is remains then for, for people who, who work in a variety of different companies? Um, to, to Why should they be loyal, right? And that's the most important point. And that's kind of the, the conclusion of the article, right? It's a bit of a trap. Well, if loyalty doesn't matter, how the hell are you supposed to keep your employees? Because that means the, the companies really have to try extra hard today to really make sure that the employees stay with them. But I think because, there's a question yeah. before that, like, when did it change and why? Right? Because, I mean, I know in my, my parents' generation, most, many, many people would stay with their company their whole lives, often. Um, and I think it has to do also with information, how much info you have. I think today, within seconds, you can figure out on Glassdoor what other people make, what other people do. Um, and what the job description is, whereas, I don't know, 
50 years ago or 100 years ago maybe uh, you were happy if you could go to the if there was an open position at the bakers um, in your little town so I also ha- think it has to do with information sharing and, and and all of that and I think all I mean and what you said that things are set up in a way that it's beneficial to for people to change I think also the whole way of how salaries are being done right like often if you switch companies or you go to if another company wants to hire you you can renegotiate your salary and actually you would get a higher salary than what you would get as a raise inside your own precisely right it's a and the article also gives examples of well netflix they openly promote employees to go to each to the hr to find out how much on average they make on the market and if they get a better offer they will give them an account offer because they are basically saying, we will pay you the best on the market by far. No exceptions. Wow. Right? And then obviously for companies who don't do that, it's it's very hard to then to, to well, you have to offer something else. And uh, in terms of a transactional uh, experience, right, there's a transactional uh, relationship, what is there to offer but the salary? Hmm. But I mean, that's, that's you know, precisely correct, right? I, to me, that's why this article is interesting. I, right, the, we all know that before that, the idea and the sort of the, the, um, the concept of living in, in, in the 60s was you can find a company and you work there for 30 years and you retire, right? That's the stereotype. However, probably today, the idea is, yes, there's more competition, there's more information, but there's more at play. And it's actually instinctively the, 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 the setup between employees and employers, which is basically even biological, biological at this point. What right? do you it's, mean biological? Biological. Because it's it's inherently, inherently connected to how we think, right? It's not even related to, let's say, a business doing something or a person doing something. It's just the fact that because we have a transactional relationship, the emotions are removed from it because we as human beings are trained to basically understand if it's a transaction, we need to remove emotions out of it to try to not get <laughs> run over and uh, lose from the transaction, right? We, we become more aware when we're trying to do transactions. Yet when we do things like religion or patriotism or we, we love our family or whatever, we might do very stupid things because we believe into the greater good and we hope into we hope that this communication and this sort of relationship is worth more than, than it is, right? Mm. Be- so you're saying pretty much that it has... Working for a company has become much more seen as a transaction than as kind of like a lifelong decision in the past. Maybe it was always like this. It's just now, right? You said there's other factors involved, like we we talk, which we talked about, right? What you just said that uh, there's more people, there's more companies out there, and information is more transparent, right? There's much more higher competition. Everybody's trying to do a startup. Yeah, so I mean, it that is there, right? That might like be a transaction than it did before or it's portrayed more it looks more yeah yeah yeah. maybe the the, the thing in the fact that this relationship was always transactional before that the company could kind of protect itself and pretend look we're going to hire you for 30 years but in the past 50 years people were fired on the spot without any consequence mm-hmm. right well mm-hmm. there were consequences right but and so this slowly went away and people understand now then yes this is actually just a transaction and there's nothing else to it mm. because employment isn't a lifelong uh, loyalty to your king or to your to your religion or to your family or to your right to your to your <laughs> to your village mm. it's just a transaction and that's not and there's nothing also, else to it i mean what you said it gives rise to entrepreneurship i think right a lot maybe before you had 
in a, in a town you have many small businesses and maybe now people start doing their own businesses too. Um, more and more. Could be nice. I think that's a positive note to end this podcast on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for this chat. Thank you very much, Miriam. And <laughs> I see you next week. See you next week. Bye-bye.